There was a whiff of shame about the circumstances that led some three million young men to sign up for hard labor in the 1930s. In Center County and throughout the United States, these boys, as they were commonly known, did an honest day's work, week after week, month after month. But the stigma was there. So later in life, they almost never talked about their experience. Yet from their hard labor came a wonderful and lasting legacy. Today, the stigma is gone. And the descendants of those boys? They're exploring the once hidden lives of their dads, uncles, and grandfathers, and celebrating what they created 80-some years ago throughout the country, including right here, dead center. Hi, I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. Back in the 1930s, at the height of the Depression, some things were best left unsaid. Like everybody else, I mean, he didn't talk much about it. He kept sort of quiet about it, you know. I have a lot of papers here that I found in his, uh, he had a trunk, you know, he kept stuff in it. Mike Credatus has been trying to piece together his grandfather's life from the clues found in an old trunk. It's a sticky Sunday afternoon in July at Poe Valley State Park. About 100 people are here. They're seated at picnic tables in a large pavilion that shields them from the steamy sun and occasional drizzle. Their common bond? Most of them had a family member who once worked in the Civilian Conservation Corps. Until they started coming to these gatherings, many of them knew little about the CCC because, well, because of the stigma. It was a very desperate time that I don't think any of us here today can truly understand. Bill Markham is perched on a stool at the front of the pavilion. The hum you can hear as he talks is the big portable generator that powers his microphone, computer, and slideshow. This is probably a good time to note that the audio isn't great. There's some static and popping sounds in the microphone and a lot of rustling later when it gets passed from person to person. But the words of the participants seemed well worth some spotty sound quality. What did they do? These guys were a labor force. That's what they were. They, they weren't anything else. Markham is one of the primary organizers of this gathering, and similar ones dating back to 1983. His grandfather had been a foreman in the CCC. Markham has been researching the era, trying to understand what life was like for his grandfather. Well, what I can understand, and what I can't, I can't truly grasp and wrap my head around, is mom and dad saying, son, we don't have, I don't have dinner for you tonight. Uh, and I probably don't have anything to feed you for the next few days. You're going to have to go figure it out on your own. And that's what was happening. Scholars still debate the causes of the Depression, but nobody questions its impact. Here in Center County, industries such as coal, lumber, brick, stone, and textile production ground almost to a halt. Small businesses whose products and services were considered luxuries fared even worse. Before the Depression ended, Center County would lose a quarter of all its businesses, including four of its five laundries, its only sporting goods manufacturer, and six ice cream parlors. The bleakest year of the Depression, the year when the economy fell so steeply that the country seemed to be in a bottomless pit, was in 1932. 
That was the year that American voters turned Herbert Hoover out of office and put their faith in a man whose ideas were radical for the time. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In his first 100 days in office, Franklin Delano Roosevelt rolled out his New Deal. It included an unprecedented experiment in getting people back to work by providing jobs funded by the federal government. His favorite of all the jobs programs was said to be the CCC because it combined one of the nation's most pressing needs, jobs, with one of his passions, conservation of the nation's forests and other natural resources. FDR's thinking went like this. Since the time of the first European settlers, Americans had been taking advantage of what he called the green slopes of forested hills. Many woodlands were now timbered ruins. Others were intact, but not accessible to those who otherwise might draw strength from a vigorous hike or a swim in a mountain lake, or to those who might find serenity in the fresh air and scenic beauty of nature. Meanwhile, the Depression had created a demographic of young men with no jobs and no opportunities on the near horizon. Roosevelt feared that they would at best become lazy and out of shape, and at worst, turn to alcohol or crime. So he propelled CCC legislation through Congress within weeks of taking office. The Corps accepted young men between the ages of 18 and 26. There was no shortage of applicants for the program. Yet they weren't exactly proud to ask for the job. That's because of the eligibility requirements. The enrollees were selected locally. At the county level, the selection boards, anybody could go sign up to get into a CCC camp. However, the family had to be listed in county relief roles. And that was a stigma for the time. And because it was a stigma, most of them didn't talk about it later in life. And I'm not just talking about the Center County boys. Chuck Yeager, the Air Force test pilot who broke the sound barrier. He was one of the boys. So was St. Louis Cardinal Stan Musial, whose stellar career led him into baseball's Hall of Fame. And Raymond Burr, the actor who portrayed TV's Perry Mason. But their CCC days are a blip in their biographies. Given the silent treatment that the CCC got from so many of those who worked in the camps, it's fortunate that at least one Center County participant liked to talk about his CCC days. My grandfather was the senior foreman in this CCC camp, and he talked endlessly about his time in the CCC camps when I was a little kid. So I heard all those stories. And uh, when my grandfather passed, we found a treasure trove of photographs, textural documents, drawings, uh, all, all kinds of memorabilia that uh, got me interested to then keep bring us to where we are today. Markham, his wife Mary, and a handful of others are the driving force behind CCC Legacy Day. It's an annual, or almost annual day, when anybody can come to share stories, learn a little bit more, and celebrate the legacy of the CCC. Poe Valley State Park is part of that legacy. Near the site of this year's gathering, the CCC's Company 1333 built a camp in the 1930s 
that was designated as S-63. It included an officer's quarters and forestry quarters that are still standing. The men who worked at the camp built the dam that created Poe Lake, and they took on other projects that improved the forests, farms, and roads in the region. The first Legacy Day in 1983 was mostly a reunion of old CCC veterans. So were the 13 Legacy Days that followed. For a while, Legacy Days were held more sporadically. When the event settled into more of a routine, it had changed. Most of those guys were no longer with us. They, they were passing. Legacy Days had evolved into a reunion of the veterans' descendants. Since each Legacy Day has attracted newcomers, Markham gives an overview of the camp. He includes a taste of CCC life, literally. The spare ribs, sauerkraut, and mashed potatoes that are served for lunch come right from the old CCC menu boards. In fact, part of the allure of the CCC was the three square meals a day the boys could count on. And that wasn't all. These guys got paid a buck a day, but when they signed on, they signed on an agreement that sent $25 of that in an allotment form home. They didn't get a chance to get their hands on it. They, they had to set up a schedule that that went back to mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, whatever the case may be. They did not see that money. And that money helped save a lot of things. It saved a lot of homes from being taken away by banks. It put coal in the bin, it put food on the table. So despite the stigma that came from acknowledging their poverty, these guys were heroes to their families. Markham clicks through his slideshow, giving his attentive audience a look at the scene that would have greeted a new batch of enrollees. They rolled into camp, they came over the hill, the Siglerville Pike, and here greeting them were a bunch of other trucks that had the equipment that had been sent forward out of Fort Howard, Maryland, and it was a military encampment. That's what you're looking at. Their gear, their clothing, their setup, their management, and their organizational structure was that of the United States Army. Simple change was instead of packing a rifle, you packed a shovel. In the early years of the CCC, before camp construction became more standardized, the new recruits built their camp from scratch, drawing upon local resources and local talent. Their efforts were directed by the foremen. Guys like my grandfather, who knew how to run a saw, a hand saw that is, not, not something you plug in anywhere, uh, and, and a hammer, and, and a framing square. The, the general mission of the CCC camps was for reclamation of damaged and abused and discarded areas that, that we had simply gone through and mowed the trees down and sent them to sawmills all over the place and didn't take care of the lands thereafter. So it was, a, it was kind of a perfect fit for that. So these foremen, they were hired because they would have skills such as carpenters or they were sawyers. My grandfather owned a, a sawmill and a thrashing machine business prior to being in the CCC camp, and he was a farm boy. And for those of you that are raised on a farm, you don't call an electrician, you don't call a carpenter, you don't call a plumber, you're, 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 you're the jack of all trades. Now the younger guys weren't necessarily jacks of all trade like the foremen were, 
but they got on-job training, or OJT. A lot of these CCC boys, they would leave a camp uh, knowing how to run a piece of equipment or knowing how to lay stone or, or knowing how to hammer and, or run a, run a saw on a hammer. Uh, so there's a lot of OJT opportunity. In their free time, in the evenings and on weekends, the boys could take part in educational programs. These varied from camp to camp, but Poe Valley's was one of the better camps for education. So most boys left the camp with skills they didn't have when they arrived. As he gives his overview, Markham highlights a couple of points. One is that the word boys was not used disparagingly. Rather, it was a term of endearment, possibly born of necessity. One of the things that I remember my grandfather telling me was uh, the reason they called them boys was because for a lot of times they couldn't pronounce their names. Of course, they had no problem with the names of the local boys. They had last names like Immel or Fryer, Gramley, Hazel, Busser, Boob, Slack, Wirt, McCool, Winger, Harder, Poorman. Those were common names to, to the immediate region. But later, boys arrived from far-off corners of the state. This was a strategic move based on the limited means of transportation at the time. The initial thought was to have these boys who had signed up to become enrollees in a camp uh, to send them away from their hometowns so that if they got homesick, they, they wouldn't have a tendency to want to go home so fast because it was a pretty long distance and you only had two ways of getting around most of the time. One was hitchhiking or getting the train, and most guys couldn't possibly afford a ticket for a train. So the, the thought was if they are away from home and they get homesick, they won't be so willing or wanting to go AWOL. So newer arrivals often came from areas with large populations of southern or eastern European descent. They had names like... Raymanowski, Pavlakovich. Abubikowski, Stachachevsky, I don't even know how to say this, <laughs> Zapotinecki, Radzinowitz. Can you well imagine how, how challenging that was for them? It was just simply easier, I think, to refer to this young man as a boy at the time. Uh, th those were things that I learned along the way. Another thing he learned along the way was that there were three types of camps, two of them defined by race. The predominant type was all white. That's what Poe Valley was. There were also veterans camps. These were comprised of World War I veterans who had been out of work since the 1929 stock market collapse. And there was a third type of camp. There were the colored camps. That's the term of the time. They were all African-American men. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania had, what, 26? In the first few weeks of the CCC's existence, the camps were fully integrated. In fact, Roosevelt had issued an executive order explicitly banning discrimination in New Deal programs. The Supreme Court, however, deemed that segregation was not a form of racial discrimination. Roosevelt did not push back. He needed the support of the so-called Solid South, the white Democrats who enforced Jim Crow laws in their own states and insisted on segregation in federal programs. By 1935, all CCC camps in the United States were divided by race. 
One other point that Markham underscores is the military aspect of the CCC. It's hard to imagine that any organization other than the Army had the experience and manpower to handle the logistics of the CCC. They had to recruit and transport enrollees, build camps, create assignments, and employ half a million young men nationwide, all within the first 100 days of the Roosevelt administration. The military had the charge of administration of a CCC camp. They were, they were responsible to provide housing, they were responsible to make sure the men were clothed. That clothing came in the way of World War I surplus gear. They were responsible for their general health and welfare. There was an infirmary building in each camp. That infirmary would have a, a uh, military surgeon in it. Most of the military surgeons that uh, served in these were Navy corpsmen or Navy Corps officers. According to one story that Markham has uncovered, a military surgeon may have been getting more than his fair share of on-job training. Either the surgeon was extremely experienced in handling the manners for surgery for appendicitis, or he was extremely interested in learning about the appendix because he performed six appendix operations here in Po Valley in the infirmary. He was so, uh, so well thought of that the camp commander sent a letter off to uh, Washington saying, I think this is a little out of the ordinary. Maybe you ought to check this guy out. <laughs> but I never saw any letter following up to that. There was a hierarchy in the camp. Commanders, superintendents, foremen, and the enrollees. They wore color-coded uniforms that defined their ranks. They slept in army tents or barracks. They ate together in the field or forests where they were working or in mess halls. Their lives were regimented. Yet there was concern in the Roosevelt administration about the army's role. Militaristic fascism was on the rise in Germany, Spain, Italy, and Japan. And there were murmurs in the 1930s about war contractors from the First World War who had profited from sales of arms and chemical weapons. Sensitive to such talk, CCC organizers minimized military trappings where they could. Nobody saluted in a CCC camp. There were no drills, no MPs, no screaming sergeants ordering boys to drop and give them 20 push-ups. Still, the military influence sparked rumors that the CCC was training for war, a way to make sure that if threatened by a foreign enemy, America's young men would be in good shape from swinging sledgehammers all day long. Bill Markham doesn't buy that argument. There are many, many books written on that very topic. Was it a front rudder? My personal opinion is it was not. I, I think the economy issues of the depression of the latter 20s and early 30s, I, I don't think World War II was, I truly believe it was not on horizon. There was no, no weaponry involved. There wasn't any armament issues. It was digging ditches cutting down trees, planting trees, uh, handwork, pick and shovel work. It, was, it had nothing to do with the military itself. Nonetheless, by his own estimate, up to 90% of CCC boys ended up fighting in World War II. But certainly the United States, its military benefited dramatically from the training that these CCC boys had because so many of them got drafted. 
Intentionally or not, it's one of the important legacies of the CCC. But not the most important. That distinction goes to our national park systems. Among the amazing outcomes of the CCC, three billion trees planted, prevention programs for erosion, flood, and fires, wildlife protection, access roads to state and national parks, and countless recreational areas, such as Poe Valley and other nearby sites, including Whipple's Dam, Greenwood Furnace, and Raystown Lake. At this year's CCC Legacy Day, Markham invites others to share their stories or questions. And he was a truck driver for 24 months and a surveyor for six months. And on the side, he cut hair. So he would do that in the evening. He would cut hair in the evening. And he averaged around 125 haircuts a month. I'm here because I, I love the parks. We've been coming to this for last, off and on for the last five years or something, learning more about the history of CCC. I do have a couple of uncles that were in the CCC. And I'm here because my uncle Henry Schwarzenberger was at Grotto's CCC camp. He was a conscientious objector mm -hmm. in the Second World War. During that period of time, there was a girl that was six years old. Her name was Doris Dean. She was lost in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and they asked these CCC men to go look for her. Uncle Henry was in the group that found her. Oh. And she attended his funeral. He what? died in his 90s. He kept in contact with her for years. Those who come to Legacy Day hear plenty of stories like that. But what does Markham want them to leave with? We're hoping that they take home, uh, I, I guess, the, the appreciation of what the time was and what was done in that time by those CCC boys that we are the benefactor of here in our state park system. I suspect that they take away that and a lot more, including this year a chance to connect with one of the original Poe Valley boys. The real reason that we're all connected, we are able to share that right now with a veteran who is here. John Coots is 94 years old, but he has vivid memories of digging post holes and putting up fences for farmers in Sunbury. Coots concedes that he never talked much about the CCC, but the stigma is finally gone. And he and the other boys are getting the honor and credit that eluded them 80 years ago. But it was a good life, I enjoyed it. It's a little hard to hear him above the din of those who are here to celebrate the CCC. But what Coots said? It was a good life. And for all of us who enjoy the forest trails and mountain lakes, it's still a good life. Right here. Dead center. For more on the CCC in Center County, be on the lookout for Bill Markham's book, due out in December of 2018. It's titled, The Foreman's Boys. The theme music for Dead Center is titled Coffee Shop. It was composed by David Zestse. If you enjoyed today's podcast, consider subscribing to Dead Center wherever you get your podcasts. Or catch up on past episodes by clicking on the podcast link on the Center County Historical Society homepage. You'll find that at centerhistory.org.